Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of The Now Podcast. I'm your host, Tara Honeywell, and today we're going to delve into the intricate world of the brain. I have a very special guest with me. She's a distinguished neurologist. She's dedicated her career to unraveling the mysteries of the human brain. She's a member of the board of the Swedish Neurological Association, and today we're going to talk about stress, migraines, headaches, and the transformative power of mindfulness and meditative practices. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Ellen Lilleval. Welcome, my special guest. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you. We always start off by um, the big question. This is what we ask all of our guests. Tell us a little bit about yourself. The question is, who am I? Who am I? I would say first, um, I like to compete, so competitive. Um, I think I'm a nice person, but not always. Um, I like to have goals in life. Uh, I like to win. Um, but I am also very sensitive. And um, uh, I'm trying right now to learn how to not always um, reach the goals that I want. So saying that I'm a 41-year-old girl with three kids, working 100%, love to uh, play tennis and football and doing a little bit too much in my life. So that's about it. <laughs> High achiever. Yes. So I didn't, in- I didn't include this in the introduction, but you also had an early career as a professional tennis player. Yes, and that was my life for a few years. Uh, I tried to be number one in the world. Uh, I didn't make it, but it was a fun trip to try to work and try to uh, practice as much as you can and try to be as good as you can at something. So I learned a lot uh, from it. So you played tennis your whole life, like your early childhood? Everything. Uh, tennis and football. And, and fo- now, now I'm doing it again through my kids. Uh, so the three of them, they're all playing a lot of tennis and yes. football. So tell us a little bit about your background. Are you born and raised here in Gothenburg? Yes, I am. Um, in Engården, uh, which is a a nice area in Gothenburg. It's very calm. Um, I was raised with um, my parents and uh, I had three siblings. Um, again, a lot of sports, um, a lot of school, um, but I had a very good childhood. And you traveled, so your tennis career brought you outside of Sweden? Yes, I've been traveling a lot uh, both with my parents and my family when I was younger. We were driving the car everywhere. And then getting older, uh, I played tennis. Um, every summer I played in, in Germany, the Bundesliga, and I played in, in Denmark and then in France. We lived there for eight months. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I played in the U.S. for two years in scholarship. Mm-hmm. Where in the U.S.? I was in Salt Lake City. Uh, I went to Salt Lake City because of... Uh, the Olympics. Yeah. Um, I yeah. ended up being two years because of an American boyfriend. Uh, and I love to ski. So it's an amazing place to go ski. Yes. And then what brought you back to Sweden? Was that time up? Um, I was, when I decided, I didn't really know because when you are on a scholarship, you can get uh, an education for free. Uh, I knew by that that I was not going to be number one in tennis. So I wanted to become a doctor. So I was actually thinking about staying 
in Salt Lake or in, in the US and do that. But then uh, I miss my family and I really like Sweden. Uh, so I moved back. So what was it that inspired you to become a doctor? I think it's uh, many things, actually. I have a father who's a neurologist. I tried for many years not to become a neurologist, but uh, I think the brain is the coolest thing ever. Uh, so um, I couldn't, um, or I was not able not to uh, go that path. Um, and again, I like to have high goals and I like to help people. So this was a very good combination and uh, I just loved it from the first day when I went to med school and I loved it ever since. Did you work with your mind a lot as, a, as an athlete? Did you do a lot of mental training? And Yes, I did. Um, I went to uh, uh, gymnasium, I went to Borstad, uh, the tennis gymnasium, mm -hmm. and then that we worked a lot with sports psychology and also in, in the US uh, mm -hmm. we did. So in the US we had it, I think it was three or four times a week. Uh, and I, I think if I haven't become a neurologist, I think maybe that's something I, I would like to um, do because I think it's so interesting how much you can affect your brain just uh, before the game and small things uh, that you can do during the matches just to be able to win instead of losing. And that's, that's very interesting because that I'm trying to teach my kids. I mean, they're 11, 8 and 5, so sometimes I need to... <laughs> adapt to your adapt. <laughs> like, But just small things like uh, shoulders down and kind of don't f um, show if you are sad or angry and... Um, mm. It's very interesting. And how you think, if you think you're going to win, um, that's a big difference if you compare to you think that you're the worst one on the mm -hmm. on the court. So. Mm -hmm. so just having that mindset. Yes. Yeah. So you're currently working at Kalandishka? Yes. And what kind of clients are you working with right now? The thing is, it's it's very different. I mean, I most of the times I don't know who's going to come to my uh, clinic. And it can be everything from... I mean, the age is different. Some we have from 16 up to 100. And uh, some of them um, have, we work with MS and ALS and uh, brain tumors and uh, um, a lot of headache, um, patients with headache and a lot of migraines. Um, so for me, it's, um, uh, it's a challenge to... Uh, uh, find the diagnose and the treatment for the patients. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is in neurology that we don't have treatment for everyone. Mm -hmm. And then we work a lot with practice and meditation mm -hmm. and uh, how can we make the patients feel better even if you get the diagnosed ALS. Mm. Mm. It's sad, isn't it? It is sad. I mean... Everyone's so different, so so it's sometimes it's, uh, we don't have that many. I mean, we can do an MR scan, we can take tests, but a lot of the diagnosis that we have, we don't have like an answer. If you have problems with your heart or your kidney, then you get the the lab results and you know what the problem is. In neurology, we don't know everything. I mean, we learned so much if you compare to how my dad worked; they didn't know anything. Uh, nowadays we know a lot, like MS, we have a good treatment and 
um, and some other diseases too. But a big challenge is for me, I mean, it's up to uh, me as a doctor and then to um, to uh, set the diagnose. Mm. And that makes it very interesting too. Mm. Um, but it's, it's sometimes it's difficult. Like you can have a patient, you see something's wrong, but you have no clue at all where to start. What can this be? Is it in your brain? Is it in your nerve system outside the brain or what's the problem or is it just that someone's stressed mm. or um, have something going on in life or it can be so many different things and sometimes I have patients coming into me in a wheelchair and they can't walk and haven't been able to walk for years and I do whatever I can do with an MR scan and I do lumbar punctions and take tests and do everything and Sometimes we don't find anything that's wrong. Um, and then we have to sit down and talk to them. And it's difficult just to say to someone that's sitting in the wheelchair, um, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, what are you doing? You need to be able to walk, but why not? And to say that to someone in a good way so you don't uh, make them feel... Uh, Hopeless. Yeah. Or, yeah. So that's a big challenge, but it's it's also... Very interesting how I have had patients who, after a few meetings with me, they can actually walk. Mm. It's so cool. And what is that? It's, are, are you sending them away with practice? Like we can't find yes. anything wrong with you, but what do you? What do you have we them talk do? a lot about the brain? We talk about I because I think the brain is amazing. Um, it can send out signals and give you symptoms that you don't really you shouldn't have. We don't find anything that's wrong. You, we don't find a brain tumor. We don't find uh, MS. Uh, it's your brain telling you that you can move your leg, and you can work with that. You can you can actually help and uh, heal your brain so you can start walking again. It's it's so cool. That's amazing. Yes. So, what would you say from your perspective? How much and how little do we know about this brain of ours? Ooh. Um, we, I mean, I don't even know if you can answer that no, question. No, I can't actually, but um, it's a lot of things where you don't know. We still don't know. Yes. It's like a mysterious... And we have, I mean, we have some diseases that we know a lot, but it's so, it's so like for example, Parkinson. Um, I think I um, meet a Parkinson person uh, at least once a week. Uh, so I have learned how to, I can actually just look at the person uh, most of the time, just say, oh, this is, I think, Parkinson. We never say that, and we have to um, see the patient a few times before we can set the diagnose. But uh, so many different symptoms you can have as a Parkinson person. You can have someone that's shaking, and that's it. And you can have someone that uh, have a hard time moving their arm. They can do it, they are strong, but they just, the signals because you have not enough dopamine, the signals is not coming from your brain out to your arm. Mm. So it's, I think in the future, a lot of the diseases we have is going to be like um, put into smaller diseases and then maybe we can treat them better. Mm, more specified? Yes. I, I still think in a few years, if I can dream, I think a lot of the diseases, maybe it's going to be Lilval type one or type two. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you Classifying. never know. Yes. Ah, that could be some of your work. Yes. Yeah. But maybe, maybe not. But uh, mm -hmm. I think we're going to learn a lot more about the brain and uh, about sleeping and uh, uh, memories and uh, dreaming. And it's a lot more to uh, 
um, explore. Yeah, exciting, because now yeah. we have technology that's giving us so much more information. Yes. And that's what's fun in our field too with meditation because we talk about, the, I mean, meditation, this practice of self-reflection and closing our eyes and calming our minds has been something that's been around for a long time. But now it's very exciting that there are studies and there's some science-based evidence that shows the benefits of meditation, mindfulness, even compassion practices um, So and, and breath work and working with the breath. I think that's very good. I think both the patients needs it and we need it. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a good question, actually. How many of your clients, or can you say like a rough percentage of your clients, their symptoms or their diagnosis stress-related? Many. Many. Yes. I would say uh, maybe I, I can find uh, some kind of disease in one out of five. Mm. So, so four out of five. Four out of five, it's stressed and... Uh, um, a lot of uh, tingling in your arms and legs and uh, um, headache. And, and uh, again, we do, most of the times we do a full examination and then I sit down with them and say, like, I, I can't find anything that's wrong with you. And I, I think this will be better if you just have the right mindset and take mm. care of your body. Mm. And a lot of patients get better. Slow down. Yes. Maybe do a little less. Maybe I should do that too. <laughs> it's hard in this in this life, right? We're doers. We're not beers. We're, oh. we're so good at doing. And we often pile on more than we need to. Yes. And, that's a and I think I, I, I do believe that stress is good for your brain and your body. I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need time to recover. And mm-hmm. that's what you can do here. And I think that's amazing. Right. You need to relax. You need to um, find the way of getting energy instead of just losing. Mm, so that's where we talk about parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. Yes. Right? It's actually that we, it's a lot of um, studies going on uh, and we're learning more and more about it. Mm. And we see that because before you uh, said it's more sympathetic. Um, yeah, sympathetic. Um, it's more uh, when you're afraid or something going on like, uh, and then... Um, Parasympathetica. Parasympathetica. Yeah, yeah. It's more um, the relaxing part of it. But now we see actually both of them um, are uh, affected when you're afraid or... or so it's actually not... Uh, it's not black and white. No, it's not black mm. and white. Uh, but we're learning a lot more about it. And mm. it's about breathing and heart beating and, mm-hmm. and everything actually in your system is connected to it. Mm-hmm. The whole physiology of it, yeah, that fight-flight-freeze, that survival mechanism, and then that rest and digest, which is what we are working with when we meditate and calm down and de-stress with meditation and breath work. So you experienced breath work with me. Um, Do you remember that experience? You came and joined me for, you were so brave, you joined me for a (laughs) three-hour. I know, but I liked it. And I have to say I'm... um, a little bit skeptical from the beginning, like being a person who likes facts and like uh, uh, I want to know why I'm doing things. Mm-hmm. So coming here, uh, Tara was inviting me. I was, oh, what am I doing here? But I wanted to see and I was interested and, and um, I went through a hard time three three years ago. Yeah, it's, it goes by fast. Uh, I got breast cancer and it was a experience that I hope no one else needs to go through but in the same time it's you have to look at everything 
in a good way. And I learned how to calm down, how to be in the now instead of just reaching after new goals. Mm. And um, I was rather quickly after going through chemo, uh, back to work, back to uh, the normal life. And I don't think I ever, or before I was not able to uh, think through what I actually, what happened. But coming here, doing exercises and the breathing, it took me back to the feeling of being here and now. And I never, or never, now I actually cry more, but before I never cried and I was actually crying a lot during this. Mm-hmm. And there was a new experience for me. But it was good. It was good to to land and to talk about it. So uh, after that, I've been doing the breath or the breathing exercises more. Mm-hmm. And not every day, but uh, a few times a week I do it. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I remember it so clearly. And that was such a beautiful moment. So beautiful to share that with you. And I'm I'm so grateful that you trusted me because I know that skeptical. Oh, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm going to trust. <laughs> I liked it. Oh. So back to headaches, because that's such a big topic too. A lot of people are suffering from headaches and migraines. I can start telling you that around 90% of uh, everyone um, have ever had a headache. So it's very common. And Around fifteen uh, percent of everyone have uh, migraine, and that's that's a that's a lot of people, uh, and most of the people uh, are women. Uh, it's much more common in um, among m- women. Do you have a definition of what a migraine is? Yes, I do. I mean, we have two types of migraine. One is uh, when you have without aura. I don't know how you say that. And it's vision mm. uh, aura in Swedish. Aura vision where you can't really focus your eyes mm, blurry vision yes mm-hmm. and uh, you can have a different uh, um, taste in your mouth you can have tingling in your arms so a different uh, symptoms uh, mm. the most common one uh, migraine is without the aura mm-hmm. and uh, you have to have at least five um times when you have the headache that uh, reminds of migraine to get the diagnose. Mm. And it's most common, it's on one side and it's uh, pulsing and you get um, uh, like your, uh, you know, like um, uh, light, like... Um, Sensitive to light. Yes. Mm. And you want to be in a dark room, mm. uh, you can feel... Um, and you want to vomit, mm-hmm. is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have the one with the aura, and then you just have to have two of these uh, two times, mm-hmm. uh, and then you can get the diagnose. And you have most of the times you have it between twenty-four and seventy-two hours. And a lot of I have a lot of patients with a tough migraine where they have it a few times a week, and they have to lay in bed, and they are away from work, and they are feeling like it's it's a, a effect in their lives. And the thing is, what's very good to know is you can actually get medication for your migraine. So if you think you have migraine, and sometimes it's difficult to know if it's migraine or if it's just what we call in Swedish spending suvivark. Mm-hmm. And it's good to talk to a doctor about it mm-hmm. because you can get medication when you have your headache and you could get 
something we call prophylactic behandling. It's when you get it, you have medication every day. Mm. Uh, and then you can also get Botox and uh, a new medication that's called CGRP antikroppar. Um, so it's, there is a lot of medication you can have or get. If that's the diagnosis, if that's yes. what's happening. It sounds like the vagus nerve. Is it? Does it have to do with the vagus nerve? These it does symptoms? a little bit. Uh, mostly it's uh, trigeminus mm. uh, in your face. That's what we think. We don't, still we don't know exactly what migraine is. We still think it's, uh, um, it's affecting uh, the uh, veins in your brain. Mm. Um, but also um, they found a new um, receptor. Mm-hmm. That's called the CGRP receptor. So that's a new kind of medication that's actually blocking this. Mm. Um, because you, they have seen when you have the migraine, you get more of these uh, CGRP antikroppar. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's a new, the newest thing what's going on. So you can actually see um, that it's a little bit like an uh, um, epilepsy anfall mm. uh, when you get this. Mm. And you get often you get very tired afterwards, mm-hmm. um, so it's not good. But a lot of I mean we do MR scans on a lot of our patients with with migraine, and I would say ninety five ninety nine percent of them have a normal MR scan. So mm-hmm. it, it, your brain doesn't get affected afterwards when you uh-huh. have a migraine. Okay, uh, so it's so not dangerous. No, it's not dangerous. You feel like you're dying, and you yes, maybe but you're not. feel like something worse is happening. You're yes. Like, yeah. Is it something that maybe a mindfulness or meditation practice can help with? For sure. Stress related. I think so, a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling my patients about you and I tell them how, how to breathe, how to um, try not to be too stressful. And mm-hmm. uh, I also think that uh, um, exercising is the best uh, mm-hmm. medication we can have mm-hmm. and eat right. I think more about everything around to work with that. Lifestyle. Uh, lifestyle is so, so important. Exercise, good diet, drink lots of water. Yes. Sleep. Yes. Meditate. Medi- yes. <laughs> True. <laughs> and if necessary, medicate. Yes. That's yeah. I, I think it's good to know that if you if you have a lot of headache and you, especially headache, or if you have different um, symptoms, it's um, you can uh, first you go to your uh, central and mm-hmm. then you can actually talk to your neurologist and mm-hmm. there's help you can you can get. You don't mm-hmm. have to have headache every day. Mm. So seek help because there is yes. help for you. Um, going back to that then, and and living from that place of the now because this is the thing. It's so fascinating and, we, and, and this is what I share is the breath is so easy to access when we can sort of get lost in the world and lost in stress and thoughts. I love to introduce just a very simple breathing practice when we slow down the breath, which we can do anywhere we go. <laughs> just excuse yourself for a moment, just slow down the breath. And that turns around that sympathetic stress response. It turns it into that parasympathetic rest and digest because the amygdala senses, oh, I'm not in danger. I'm not being attacked and eaten. Am I correct? Is this yes. a, is she smiling at me? <laughs> yeah, but you're correct. I'm not a neurologist. No, but, but you're good, Tara. It's correct. Yeah, because it's all about this amygdala, right? Yes. So you can say amygdala attack is the amygdala is the part of the brain that senses danger and says, I'm going to be eaten by an animal or my child is uh, triggering my amygdala in whatever way, making me sign into Minecraft or Pokemon, and I don't know the password, and I have to go. I have to make oh, all these yes. modern day amygdala attacks. But if we can just um, calm down the breath and remind ourselves 
in this moment, I'm not going to be eaten. I don't need to access my superpower of the stress response. I can calm down and proceed. So giving a little space in that reaction. And that's what I always share as a practice. It's first noticing when that trigger is happening, which is really tricky. <laughs> yeah. But am I, is this sounding okay from your uh, neurological perspective? Yes. And I, I find it very interesting. I think we're going to learn more and more back to your first question, one of your first questions. We're going to learn so much more about this. Mm. Um, we don't know a lot about that part of the brain, mm. to be honest. The uh, amygdala. Yes, we mm. don't. So uh, um, we're going to learn a lot about it. And I think if we are going to use uh, breathing and meditation much more mm. than we do nowadays, I think mm. it's going to be more a bigger part of... Uh, um, a the, normal lifestyle. Yes. Mm. Right, because it's something that's becoming more and more accepted. It's something that everyone can do and everyone can benefit from. For us in the meditation world, um, again, from this like scientific perspective, it was super exciting in 2005. There was a, a neuroscientist from Harvard Medical School named Sarah Lazar who did a brain study. She's now done many brain studies, but she was sort of the first um, pioneer in the neurological brain study and meditation space at Harvard Medical, along with Mass General. And what she did was she had a study with 20 participants that participated in this study using MRIs and 15 of them had no meditation experience and then the other five had an average of nine years experience and they did these MRI studies after eight weeks of having them practice for 30 minutes per day and they looked at the brain before and after and they found these really fun results because they had images showing that parts of the brain grew and I'll just read the findings. The study found that experienced meditators had thicker cortical regions in several brain areas compared to the control groups. So they had a control group that didn't meditate. And areas showing increased thickness included prefrontal cortex associated with attention and self-awareness. That's what I have in this study. So the conclusion was that long-term meditation practice might be associated with structural changes in the brain, particularly areas related to attention and sensory processing. They provided early evidence that meditation could have a measurable impact on the brain's structure. I think it's very interesting uh, to see, and I I, I believe in, in that this is correct. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I think it's very good for your brain to do it. And I mean, uh, we're telling our patients that have uh, dementia, mm-hmm. especially frontal lobes uh, dementia, that they should do this mm-hmm. um, because then you. You use that part of the brain. Mm. So I I think it's amazing. I think uh, more studies will be done. Mm. Um, and I'm looking forward to see the result. Right, because I also, there's a study that shows that our brains, from my understanding, our brains shrink. Is it starting at the age of 20 or yes. 30? Yes. Sorry brains. to say yeah. <laughs> It's shrinking. But apparently a meditation practice can help not grow necessarily, but it can actually prevent the brain from shrinking. So they've done a study that they showed 40-year-old meditators had the same size brains as 20-year-old non-meditators. Mm. Does that sound like That's, a possibility? I think so. Then it's, I mean, it's it's difficult to do, um, to say how the brain would look like if you haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have that money that you can actually see that the brain is still the same size, I would say yes. It's 
probably because of the meditation. Mm. Uh, so it's very cool. And and we can, I mean, again, back to, we do a lot of MRA on our patients and uh, we see small brains, to be honest to mm. say. And, and they function rather well, but the brain... Shrinks. Gets, yes. What, why does it shrink? Is it because... The same as everything else, I would say. I mean, you're not using it as much and, and you get older and uh, uh, we see that the small... Um, do you say vessels? Mm -hmm. yeah. Vessels. Uh, um, they um, get injured uh, or they you get um, a plaque in them. Uh, mm. And that affects your brain too. Mm. Um, but again, we don't really know why. Right. You just know it shrinks oh, yes. and it stops working. So things just stop firing. And it, is it the white matter that is sort of that electric connectivity yes. between the gray matter? Yeah. And the corpus callosum that well connects done. the... Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah. Connecting the right and the left <laughs> hemisphere. Yes. Yeah. It's true. And, and one thing that I think is interesting, what we know that nowadays is uh, we use around 30% of our, our brain that's what we use and I often ask like why are we not why are we not using more than that so I can have uh, patients that have tumors big as uh, a handball and they're not affected at all because it's on the like a place in the brain that we don't use that much and I can have a patient who have just a small stroke in the wrong area and they can be totally um like uh, affected and they can't move the right side of the body, for example. So it's it's very. So I think it's interesting what's happening in those parts of the yeah, brain. Yeah, and I why mean, are we just using thirty percent? That's it's funny because I did a research. My son was so obsessed with Pokemon, and I, I was trying to I was trying to re actually I nerded out and said, "Is this good?" Because he knew every Pokemon character's <laughs> name and right, like everything about them. So I was like, "Please, just see if this is good for him or not." And I uncovered some. I uncovered a man that did research and he found locally in his brain, he called it the Pokemon brain. <laughs> it was like a part of his brain that was lighting up every time they, yeah. they did these studies and showing the Pokemon characters and every time it's they recall. You could see it here. In and the that's, brain. That's interesting too, I think, with how our children's brain look different compared to ours because you're, you're um, finding facts in a different way. Now you can look it up on Google. Uh, we don't, I mean, we have to know uh, all the cities in, in Sweden and we need to know uh, the Gongitabellen and mm. everything. And you don't need that anymore. No. So I knew the, everyone's phone numbers when I was yeah, a kid. I know. I, yeah. I still know my phone number. Right. from. me too. That's it. Yeah. And, and I don't even know my own phone number no. now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> automatic. But that means you can see that the brain looks different, like different mm. areas in the brain is getting bigger and smaller. Uh, I think that's cool. I think they have to learn how to um, use the brain as we did too. So I think you should try to combine mm -hmm. both. Yeah, get old school. Yes. Still go out and do things. So I'm still asking my kids about gongitabellen every yeah. time they go to sleep. Yeah, memorize it. I think it's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, goodness, I just had a thought and I lost it. See? My oh, that was the question. That's so fun because I was like, <laughs> thoughts. So the mind, thoughts. Is it true? Can we can we localize a thought in the brain? Um, both yes and no. Um, we know some parts in the brain that uh, has to do with uh, thoughts and memories and and uh, so on and so far. Um, they're talking a little bit about uh, different kinds of memory. You have uh, short term memory and long term memory in the different parts in in your brain. Mm. 
And um, what's interesting is when you have different, um, you can have um, different kinds of dementia and that affects different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. So um, some patients can have a hard time with a long-term memory. Mm. Most The most common is the short-term memory. And you can remember um, what happened when you were 10 years old, but you don't remember where you put your keys or what your husband's name is. Or um, it's, it's very, it's interesting. But do we know where the memories are stored in the brain? Uh, not uh, not exactly. Mm. Uh, we know kind of where it is. Relatively. Yes. Pokemon for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, in, we talk a bit about brain waves when we meditate. Actually, I can ask another question is, but how many thoughts the average person has per day? Oh, I don't know, actually. Do no, you know? there was a number that went around that was sixty to 80,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. But now I think it's more. Yes, but you don't know because no, then, and then it, because then the the reason I think the conversation is interesting. I had a very smart student that came in and said, "What do you mean? What is a thought, and how do you measure it?" And that's the conversation: is that how do we measure a thought? Where's the beginning and end of a thought? Right. So then it goes to brain waves. I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. Keep going. <laughs> so, what is a brain wave from your perspective and your point of view? Ooh, what I think of when you say brain wave, I would say. Um, when information is sent from one place to another, mm -hmm. um, what we can measure uh, is when we do an EEG. Mm -hmm. And what I think about when as a neurology, just uh, I think about if you have uh, a seizure, mm -hmm. um, then then we can measure how it looks in your brain and the brain waves goes. And you can see if it's very slow, for example, for older people, it's slower. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have... Um, a, a disease it can be slower too and it can it looks differently mm. uh, so that's what I think about okay so we talked about you know can you measure like different states of awareness like deep sleep is delta do you yes. talk in that term of delta and then theta alpha beta and then gamma yes that's a yeah so are those brain waves and they have different yeah, frequencies. Can, yes, or? that's that's also kind of brainwave. Mm -hmm. um, so you can it? measure that, and you go into different states uh, um, when you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And and um, we have patients they have narcolepsy mm -hmm. or hypersomnia, mm -hmm. and then you have a different way of when you go to sleep with REM sum. REM sleep. So is that dreaming? Is that that rapid eye movement? Yes. So uh, we can measure that too. And then you use the EEG too mm -hmm. uh, to measure that. Mm. And that's another, uh, I mean, we're again learning more and more about sleeping and how we can affect that and how important it is mm -hmm. to sleep well. Right, how much we need. And Yes. But it's not, this is what I always say, you know, and this is a big one with us with meditation. It's sometimes we don't get enough sleep. And if I'm going to meditate in the morning, that means I have to wake up 15 minutes earlier. So how much of my sleep can I dig into to meditate? And mm. the mind wants to justify that's that. That's difficult to know because we're so different. Some people need five hours. Mm. I need eight at least. And isn't it about quality rather than quantity? Yes. Yeah. And again, how deep you get, how right. much remsum and so on and so far. So mm -hmm. yes. So what I always try to say is just if you're waking up, if your alarm goes off and you're hitting the snooze button, that's not quality sleep. So if that's happening, just get up and meditate because yes. then you're going to be able to go and have a restorative meditation and start your day with a calm mind. Mm 
I would say so too. Mm, I love that because we use the metaphor with the the mind being like a supercomputer. We have a lot of IT people that come here and that's sort of the language I use to connect because we say meditation is sometimes like unplugging the supercomputer or hitting the reset button. We have all those programs mm -hmm. running and all that coding going on and you know things don't work well if too many things are running so just unplug it and then just start over and then things work better. So yes. <laughs> Yeah, but it's no, it's a good one because sometimes uh, um, I found it difficult to talk to my patients about how the brain works mm -hmm. and, and in the right, uh, how, how should I say things to make them understand what I mean. Right. And and I think it all comes back to you need how to learn how to use your brain in the best way to save energy. You can use energy, but you need to save energy. And how do you do that? Like, for example, for our progress on patients that needs a lot more and same with MS and, and stroke patients, you need a lot more energy to move and to do things. Mm -hmm. As a healthy uh, person, you don't have to think about how you move your arms and legs or breathing or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're sick, you need to think about all this and that makes you very tired. And then you need to find times where you can just sit down and get back, like you said, unplug Recharge. and yeah. do it again and just relax and, and, uh, capture the movement and get energy mm -hmm. to be able to go back again. And have a good relationship with your stress because then when we start to calm down and we live from a connected place, which you shared with the breath work, when we come back and we can just come to the now, maybe we're not going to react so much or we're going to make wiser decisions and make yes. those shifts in our lifestyle that we need mm. to stay well. Yes. And learn to breathe and learn to meditate. Yes. And you're in the right and exercise, drink water, sleep yes, well. That's the best thing. But a lot of people also come to us because they do have a problem sleeping. It's this connection with the mind and quieting the mind and calming down and being able to get restorative, good quality. I think quality a lot sleep. of people have problems with sleeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're so overstimulated yes. and overworking. And, and don't use your phone after six o'clock, yes. for example. So don't don't uh, don't look at emails or Instagram or whatever it is after because your brain will wake up again and it's going to be very tough and hard to shut it down and go to sleep. Right, we're going to just dream about the probably useless things yes. we're scrolling through on our phones. And also when you wake up in the morning, just try to give a little space between waking up and grabbing your phone. Yes. Because we're just, we're lost. We can wake up and we're just back at it. We're repeating the same thing. Those whatever number of thoughts per day, 60 to 80,000 or more probably, they say that 95% of those thoughts were the same thoughts we had yesterday. I know, yeah. Do you heard, yeah, I heard that too. Yeah. And, um, but it, it's uh, back to the phone and, and that I think it's interesting to see like how uh, addicted you can be. Like look at our kids. Mm -hmm. They look at the phone the whole time. If you go in by car, mom, can I have a phone? Mm -hmm. And it's not good for you. I think you can have a, a little bit of uh, that, but not too much. Be bored. Yes, be bored, just look out the window and just do nothing. We talked about this the other day, we were talking about how important boredom is and on the other side of boredom is creativity. And that's yes. like, I remember long road trips just looking out the window and daydreaming. Mm. So and it's all about, I mean, um, dopamine, endorphiner and so on and so far that goes on in the brain. Yes. And they're so used to get this input the whole time. So it's not, I don't think it's good for the brain. They're addicted to dopamine. Yes. Dopamine hit. Back to Pokemon. That's a dopamine hit game, yes. right? Yes. I'm so grateful for you having this conversation with me. Yeah, but I would love so to come good. back. We can talk more about the brain and, and uh, it's just fun. Can I, we I keep love doing the, this? Yeah, I love the brain. I think it's so interesting and I think 
it's interesting to see how the brain reacts and how your body reacts when you do th- different things. I mean, stressed and then uh, breathing and uh, exercising, or you get a, uh, you get sick somehow, and how, yeah, how again, how the brain. I mean, if you have dementia and it, how that can be, and it's just amazing. The whole brain is just amazing. It is. It's so cool. It's and, and it's so much we don't know. And right. but in a few years, I think we're gonna explore so much more. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm so excited to uh, be on that trip and and follow how what's going on and be a part of it too. Well, we're so happy that you're here and a part of this and being our neurologist, our expert, sharing your scientific-based evidence of all of this and that you are so open and you've had personal experiences with what we're doing here and it's so wonderful, it's so important. Um, And we can talk more about dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin, all of these DHEA, um, all of these wonderful neurotransmitters also yeah yeah (laughs) neurotransmitters because that's also when we meditate they're starting to see that we get these perfect dosages of these neurotransmitters released Mm -hmm. from the brain as we open our eyes we feel a connection especially heart-based meditations we feel that oxytocin and that love as we open our eyes and we just feel happier Mm. serotonin levels are balanced and dopamine without the highs and lows of pokemon or whatever it is (laughs) um pleasure reward and endorphins. Yes. That we get from the runner highs. Ellen, I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. And I'm so grateful for your time and your expertise, your knowledge, and your open mind. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I think we can uh, work together. And I think uh, we can help a lot of people out there feeling better. Wonderful. I love that. Let's work together. Yes. yes. <laughs> thank you, Ellen. Thank you. <laughs>